Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Soho Bites, the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and it's been a while. I'm so sorry. I can only apologise for the long gap between episodes. I've been plagued by bad luck. Firstly, December's episode was scuppered when both of the guests had lined up were struck down by a lurgy. And then when I was putting January's episode together, the audio file of one of the interviews corrupted and I lost it. Luckily, the interviewee very kindly offered to do the interview again, so that episode will be out in a few weeks' time. But it was all very, very annoying. Coming up in this episode, now that it's finally arrived, I'll be talking to Julian Rodriguez, the co-curator of the Shot in Soho exhibition at the Photographer's Gallery on Ramilly Street. And then, almost as if it was planned, we join Julian again as he introduces this week's featured film to the audience at the Regent Street Cinema. This was a screening that took place at the end of January of the 1929 silent classic Piccadilly, starring Anna Mae Wong. After the screening, which featured live musical accompaniment by Ben Como on Regent Street's magnificent organ, I met up with some members of the London Silent Film Group to discuss the film. And you can hear that discussion in the second half of the programme. Right, pause this podcast now, put your coat on, it's a bit nippy outside, and get yourself down to the Photographer's Gallery straight away to catch their brilliant exhibition called Shot in Soho, because it finishes on February the 9th. The show features photographs taken in the streets, bars, shops and flats of Soho, stretching back several decades and includes work by William Klein, Corinne Day, Kelvin Brodie and many others. The show was curated by Julian Rodriguez and Karen McQuaid and the images used were sourced in several archives, both in the UK and abroad. Despite several other commitments, Julian found time to sit down with me in, as it turned out, a quite echoey room upstairs at the gallery to chat with me about the show. I began by asking him how and when he first had the idea for the exhibition. The show started while I was doing some research for a Tashin book on London and I was in um, News UK archives near Tower Bridge and the archives there were in a rum uh, warehouse uh, very old, Victorian or maybe even older than that and the walls were dripping uh, there were lots of people walking around with like trolleys and lab coats etc 
but it wasn't a great environment to be keeping millions of photographs because every time um, a title had been bought by the uh, company, it came along with um, photographic archives, and some of those were glass negatives, um, some of them were original prints, etc. So it was a, it was a real sort of Aladdin's cave. And um, what I noticed while I was there is that the area of Soho, because there was so much material on Soho, they'd actually organised it very unusually by street. So you could find Old Compton Street, you could find Dean Street, and there would be a whole section on those streets. And I was fascinated by that because all of the other holdings weren't organised like that. So I was mentioning that to the director of the Photographer's Gallery, Brett Rogers, and she said it sounds like a great exhibition. And um, we started there. I was linked up with a curator at the Photographer's Gallery called Karen McQuaid. Uh, We got on like a house on fire. We understood what the show could be. And we quickly worked out that we wanted to show work that had never uh, been seen before. Or if we couldn't do that with all the bodies of work, that we would show bodies of work that were in existence, but through a sort of Soho light or a Soho lens. And that's how it started. How long did it take to actually get the exhibition together? I mean, I was working on it for about three years, which sounds like a long time. But actually pulling the show together, probably about a year. So there was a couple of years of just trawling through different archives. I went to Mirror Archive in Watford. I went to Westminster City Archive. I looked at some private collections of people like Michael Hoppen Gallery. So there was a lot of sort of time just looking and amassing thousands of pictures. And one of the things I'm very pleased about is that I have now come up with a list of about 150 photographers, and it's still growing, of note, um, that have photographed in Soho. So I hope I've helped lay the groundwork for future shows that are on Soho by sort of establishing who has worked here, um, you know, since about 1900 onwards. When I saw the show, I saw your talk a few weeks ago, there was one particular guy, is that William Klein, who was, he normally does New York, and he was, could you tell me about him? William Klein is one of the great photographers sort of ever, um, he, his book in the 50s called New York, he couldn't find a publisher for it because it was quite sort of um, gritty and anti-New York as publishers saw it. And he was sort of, a, he's an irreverent photographer. He uh, breaks all the compositional rules. There's a saying in photography, I think it was Gary Winogrand, that you photograph something just to see what it looks like photographed. And Klein was sort of from that school. And um, I was really lucky that in the News UK archive, I found a feature that was from the Sunday Times magazine, when the Sunday Times magazine was a really serious uh, magazine, where they'd invited Klein to photograph um, Soho. Klein is usually black and white, but this was a colour set... And the funny thing was that when we actually went to Klein Archive, I had a a contact in New York who could um, go and actually see 
the people that worked for Klein. He's still alive um, and kicking. So we were able to get to the archive, but they didn't know they, they had these pictures and they didn't know where they were. And we really had to push quite hard for them to sort of find them, get them out of the archive and get them printed, etc. And they are fantastic. Yeah, they are great. I mean, I don't know much about photography or photographers. And I was trying to figure out actually what I think it's quite a difficult area of art to critique because everybody does it. Everybody's got a phone in the pocket. And, but when you see a photograph, like if when you come here to the photographer's gallery, you look around and some of the photographs in the world sometimes, particularly that exhibition, you think, oh yeah, that's what makes a good photograph. And I still find it difficult to define. The, the people in just going through the exhibition, there's William Klein, there was John Goldblatt, he did the undressing room and um, Kelvin Brody, who did kind of street people in Soho. I mean, just people in the street, not people who live on the street. And I think the theme that runs through all of those is it's almost as though they've just stuck a camera up and pressed the shutter. But then when the picture comes out, it's not just that, because, you know, a CCTV camera could do that. I mean, is that, do you think those three are linked? I think that, um, and I've been in photography education all my life, I, I think the thing about photography is it's the simplest thing in the world to press the shutter, as you say, and it's the hardest thing in the world to get a really striking photograph that is memorable. Yeah, we've all got iPhones, but we, we can't produce photographs that are really worth looking at and will be worth looking at in 10 years' time and 50 years' time. And that is the trick that these kinds of photographers like Goldblatt, Brody, Klein, they've got that, and it's, um, it's a gift. It's not something you learn. Um, it's something about the way that they work with people, the way that they can decide on a particular moment that has got a lot of power and the way that they compose things, the way that things appear in the frame. And they do all of that in an instant. And they're magical because of that. It reminds me a little bit of... Um, I remember this documentary about why Wayne Rooney is such a great football player. And there are various sort of scientists. And he was, they showed he did this run down one wing and he... And he knit the ball into the box onto somebody's head and, you know, having to anticipate where they were going to be when the arc of this ball... And so he'd done a lot of this maths in his head in a half a second, you know. And it reminds me of that kind of... It's just something that happens automatically and some people, like you say, some people have got it. I think that is a really good example because when you hear people talking about football, they talk about how the really great players just see pictures... And they're working through visual pictures in an instant because they can see in that kind of way. And I think it is that. You're living on your wits, um, in a sense. It's, it's not something that you can think about. There isn't time to think about it. And I think for a great footballer or a great photographer, that is the case. You, you know, there's no time to think. But some people can just incisively, in a moment, work the whole thing out, see the whole thing, and press the shutter. Unfortunately, the show finishes... Uh, well, we're recording this on the 30th of January. I've got about another week or so. It closes on the 9th of February. So lots of people, by the time they hear this, it will have finished. And I believe it doesn't have an afterlife, which is a shame. At the moment, it doesn't have an afterlife. Um, we hope that it will have, but there is a book of the same title, Shot in Soho, 
and it's been published by Prestel and it is available internationally. So if people want to see the works that are on show in the gallery, the book um, is the place to do it after the 9th of February and there's two essays in there that contextualise um, the complexities and the richness of Soho. So it's a, it's a good read as well as, you know, a good... Good look. Good look. Yeah. <laughs> and you're doing a talk. After we leave here, there's um, a screening tonight of Piccadilly, which is the, the subject of the second half of the podcast, and you're doing the introduction to it. Um, how did all this come about? Well, when the show was coming together, Karen and I decided that it would be good to have other connected events... And so a film screening was an obvious choice. There's, you know, some great and interesting films that have got Soho as a theme. And so I suggested a list to the Photographer's Gallery of Possibilities. Uh, The Photographer's Gallery have got a relationship with Regent Street Cinema. And um, they decided on Piccadilly. And it is a fantastic choice. Old town of Piccadilly, dilly, 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 round by the park. You see ladies running after... And exactly three hours after Julian met me at the gallery, he was on stage at the Regent Street Cinema, presenting an introduction to the film to an expectant audience. Piccadilly. It's a succulent, expressionist treat. It's light-packed. Genius camera work for the time. Brilliant production design and costumes. For my interest in Soho, it's laden with Soho-esque themes. Private members clubs, erotic dancing, love, sex, gambling, exploited workforce, immigrant communities, class. And for good measure for a show called Shot in Soho, a gun and a murder. The star, in my eyes, actress Anna Mae Wong, is called Shosho. I would suggest a play on the word Soho. During my archival research, I came across a lot of Piccadilly-related photographs which strike chords here with this film. And Teros, being installed at the very heart of the circus. He was the god of unrequited love, um, not eros, as is often cited. An unrequited love perfect for Soho. I came across Nash's sweeping crescent, which is the start of Regent Street of Piccadilly Circus, which I found out was actually designed partly as a vanity panel to hide the debauchery of Soho behind from rich shoppers. There was a picture of the 1913 funeral cortege for suffragette Emily Davison. There were many a photograph of gentlemen's clubs, St James, the Turf, and the club that was actually in the Piccadilly Hotel. And Felix Mann, 1943, picture post feature showing black and white couples dancing at the Bullier Club in Piccadilly, one of the few sanctioned places where that could happen, and it connects to a scene in this film. And this is the perfect place to show this film. Regent Street Cinema is actually on the same road as Piccadilly, and 
Uh, it's got a history uh, projecting films dating back to 1896. So absolutely fantastic. Special thanks to Ben Como. He's an award-winning composer, and he's tonight playing this 1930s Compton organ to my right. A brilliant treat. So we're going to ask Ben to come down now. Not sure where... Yeah, there you are, Ben. Um, fantastic. Do come up. <laughs> and um, sit back and really enjoy this treat. Okay, thank you very much. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Piccadilly is indeed, to use Julian's words, a succulent expressionist treat. It was the last silent film made by the German director E.A. Dupont and is arguably the best film of the late silent era. The story centres around a grand nightclub at Piccadilly Circus where, at the start of the film, two star dancers, Mabel and Vic, have become the talk of the town. The club is doing great business thanks to its two bankable stars, but the club's owner, Valentine Wilmot, played by Jameson Thomas, is in love with Mabel, played by Gilda Grey, and is jealous of her dancing partner Vic, who he decides to sack. It soon becomes clear that Mabel without Vic does not pull in the crowd, and the club's profits begin to slide. On the lookout for a new act, Valentine becomes entranced by a beautiful Chinese scullery maid working at the club called Show Show, played by the film's undoubted star, Anna Mae Wong, and decides to offer her a slot in the floor show as a dancer. Much to Show Show's delight and Mabel's distress, the performance is a runaway success, and the newspapers rave about the new exotic discovery at the Piccadilly nightclub. As Show Show's star rises, Valentine finds himself ever more enthralled to her, and both Mabel and Show Show's boyfriend Jimmy are increasingly left out in the cold. There's a dramatic and perhaps overwrought climax which is then humorously undercut in the very last scene. The film is also notable for a comic cameo by Charles Lawton as a kind of Mr Creosote type character whose drunken complaint about a dirty plate kickstarts a chain of events that leads to Valentine's first fateful meeting with Show Show. The London Silent Film Group is a fluid group of silent film enthusiasts who attend screenings all over London and meet up afterwards to discuss the film. On this occasion, I contacted their organiser, Peter Bromley, to ask if I could come along to record their thoughts on Piccadilly, and he very kindly consented. Apart from myself, there were four people present at the discussion, and I started off by asking them to introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Alan Murphy, originally from Canada. Been in the UK for about 20 years now. Uh, my name is Peter Bromley. I'm sort of involved with the uh, Silent Film Group. I'm Neil Mbakshi. I'm also part of uh, Silent Film Group. I'm Michelle Facey. I'm a silent film programmer at the Cinema Museum with Kennington Bioscope. Have people seen the film before? I had not. No. It's my first time. No, not in its entirety. And what did you think, people who hadn't seen it before? I was impressed by it. That If you look at it, they said, done 1929? 
and that's obviously it's been it's been uh, remastered, but it stands the test of time. What do you think? Uh, I was very impressed. Uh, I, I thought it depicted the class differentiation quite well with Limestone, uh, Limehouse, and uh, the Piccadilly bit. Uh, it was interesting how there was divide class divide, and then there's a um, movement across the class divide with the show show. And also, I thought it was extremely stylized, uh, which I absolutely loved. Peter, have you seen it before? Oh, so yeah, I've seen it. I've got a copy of it as well on the DVD. The BFI released it, you know, sort of involved in the, the restoration of it. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's such a beautiful film. It's, an, it's sort of an exercise in uh, how to film and edit. It's so perfect in so many ways, you know. It's, mm. Michelle screened Moulin Rouge at Cinema Museum about a month in De- ago. Yeah, December. And um, oh, which one? E.A. Dupont's Moulin okay. Rouge. And that was the film he made before this one, I think, unless he did little things in between that aren't that, listed. That's the same cinematographer too, is it? Werner mm-hmm. uh, Brandt, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I think so. And Alfred yeah. Jung yeah. doing the art direction, of course, went on to work I mean, with so Paul and Pressburger. So, yeah, so f- sophisticated, isn't it, the film tracking shots and yeah. absolutely yeah the yeah. multi shots within shots yeah. it's just a, it, it feels, to me it felt like that this is such a massive leap onto moulin rouge mm-hmm. do you think that as well the uh, i mean, thought moulin rouge was good but i did it's kind just of a different story isn't it i mean i think i think the fact that you've got so much mise-en-scene happening within it like the shots you know the opening title yeah. sequences on the bus the route master bus sort of shunts past with the director's name on and you yeah, know a few yeah. other bits and then you've got the iconic Piccadilly heroes mm. you know but having just screened Moulin Rouge it was interesting to <laughs> compare and contrast the two yeah. um, you know that opening sequence he has a similar sequence for Moulin Rouge except it's of course it's the lights of Paris and right. all their bright lights and setting the scene and there were some other similarities in the film that I noticed. There was a wonderful shot, um, the one of um, Gilda Grey, uh, where her shadow is cast against the wall towards the end before yeah. she goes yeah. up to show shows a, a, a flat. Yeah. And it's just her shadow. And in yeah. Moulin Rouge, Olga Chekhova's shadow with the cloche hat and the veil right, that was goes across like the wall. Like his trademark. Yeah, yeah. Been, yeah. yeah. So that was, yeah. I had a little gasp then. I was like, oh, yeah. yes, and with that shadow, is how he was able to direct it as, you can see the emotion of the shadow yeah. of how angry she was getting pacing back and forth right, and it was, yeah. her anger was growing yes and even though you didn't see the actress you can tell by the shadow alone of how angry she was really getting at that point yeah, in time yeah and when he used that effect in in moulin rouge you know it's her her shadow goes very very slowly yes. and elongates along the wall mm-hmm. before she exits um the room you know it's very mm-hmm. touching and um i think that, that the direction of it is very Julian used the word succulent, I'd say piquant as well. <laughs> piquant yeah. and succulent. Yeah. succulent. It's, and, like, it's uh, like a cookery program. Yeah. <laughs> it's very tasty. How tasty film. Sunny bottom, was it? <laughs> well, it was very, it was, again, I think the, the directing style was very, uh, succulent, very meaty. It was like, it's one of the ones you can tell that the, in film school, this is one of the films that they should show all first year students about what you can do. With little, with only a little bit of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of great gestures in it, like it's a mm. real, you know, yeah. image. Yeah, I, I it's still very British, though, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I also liked British, uh, yeah. the fact that he had little nuances of, about racism in there. Yeah. You know, like the black guy who's dancing yeah. with this girl, and uh, everybody turns on the woman, and the guy's thrown out. And then with the Chinese guy, there was a little bit of that, and I sort of thought for 1929, it was quite 
poignant that he did that. Yeah, it's funny because I saw the same... I saw particularly last summer with different soundtrack, different musicians, and um, I came away thinking that that scene in the bar when... It's a very raucous bar in Limehouse and there's a black man dancing with a white woman and, and the landlord breaks it up. The first time I saw it, it must have been the music that gave me the impression that the landlord was a totally unsympathetic character and everybody's supposed to be on the side of the white woman and the black man who... The black man, he disappears because he's scared. She then protests a little bit back to the landlord. The screening tonight... The landlord didn't seem as unsympathetic as I as I remember him being the first time I saw it, which shows, you know, the power that music has. Well, I think it's very, I think it's still very classroom, and it's still got those tropes, isn't it, of the working class of a trader's either eating, you know, usually badly, yeah. or they're standing around a fire around the outside, gossiping. In the middle, yeah, the middle classes or the bourgeoisie are off to theatre and wearing top hats. Mm. But I think. Um, you know, I suppose it's strange too because it's so highly topical, isn't it, at the moment? But also a double standard. Uh, they had a problem with the with the African African American gentleman with a white girl, but yet you had the two main characters, a white guy with an Asian girl. There was no problem. There's no problem with them in that bar in Limehouse. The landlord got involved with that one couple. Oh, but that get, yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah. No, but then uh, he sort of says, "Let's get out of here." Yeah. So I think he anticipates something could happen. And yeah. the girl who was involved yeah. in the the fracas um, yeah. that had been dancing with the black guy yeah. was, you know, gesturing to them. Oh, you know, as yeah. they as they went past outside. Yeah. And she's a bit of a comedy character. That girl. I'm not quite sure how we're supposed to take that character because she, when you first see her, she's peering through the um, yeah the yeah. window with the yeah. through the circles of the, the double O's. Double O's. Saloon. 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 That's what it was. Yeah. That's a brilliant shot. <laughs> It's a great shot. If that was the only shot in the film, but there's yeah. so many. But that's it's full of <laughs> so good shots. Also, I, think I thought she was a prostitute initially, yeah. and then I that she was on a prostitute on a prowl. But then it turned, and when she came out, when she was standing with the guys outside, it was like, what's going on? She's a local girl, and she's just talking about the stereotype yeah. of a, dr- a drunk white girl out causing trouble. Yeah, the bit that blows me away every time is the nightclub scenes. It, it looks like something looks like kind of steady cam almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is still when they're using the handheld, where they're using the cranker, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it's sort of using a little bit above that now. But the fact that the camera moves so much is yeah. just amazing, you know. Like even the car shots, you know, when they're yeah. tracking that car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I haven't seen that as a Fitz Lang, for, uh, a lot of the. I think even uh, Werner was at the school, wasn't he, in Germany? It's sort of probably picking up a lot of those techniques yeah. prior to shooting Moulin Rouge and this, yeah. you know. it's... So, yeah. just from a technical point of view, the cameras, cameras at that point would have been, what, clockwork or something? Or? Yeah, they're pretty big, you know, but they, I think they were developing, the Germans then, like in, the, in, in LA, they were developing like a motorised sort of version, but they were, you know, they were slightly, uh, it's almost like a dynamo when they're cranking the camera, rather okay. than the early version, 10 years, where they would have had to keep time to the shots. You know, a little bit more sophisticated. It's, there is something that, that makes yeah, them go the go steady speed. a lot more, uh, you know, yeah. helps helps keep that continuity through the takes. I like but, you it. know, even so, it's a huge device, you know, huge apparatus to move. Like when it, when they come out and get into the car, you know, even the scenery behind is all kept in pace. Incredible. They would take a long time to set those shots up. And yeah. every shot is well thought yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what impressed yeah. me. Yeah. It's like, this is, yeah. again, this is well, almost 100 years ago. Yeah. And they're making movies today that are nowhere near as tight and coherent as this movie is. 
lead billing of the woman anyway is um, Gilda... Gilda Grey. Gilda Grey. But actually the star of the film is obviously Anna Mae Wong as Show Show. And from the little I read about her, I know that she, she's American-Chinese, second generation. She came over to Europe because she was she had a terrible time with the, the racist film industry in America. Yeah. Do, do you want to tell a little, little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she, um, the last film that she made in America before she left for Europe, she was playing second bill to Myrna Loy, who was in yellow face makeup. And Myrna Loy was being praised for her exoticism and her dancing and her, you know, way with Oriental characters. And Anna Wong had to play second fiddle to her. She'd even been unbilled as a dancer in in a film. She was in the, you know, Douglas Fairbanks film, Thief of Baghdad, as a dancer. She just couldn't have a leading part. Um, so she was invited to Europe and made five films here in 28 and 29 and 30. Um, she signed up with Richard Iceberg, a German director, and made several films with him, Song and Pavement Butterfly, and um, Talkie, High Tang, um, made three th MLVs, multiple language versions of that film. That was a talky one. Um, and Piccadilly with um, E.A. Dupont. And she would later comment that um, it was only when she came to Europe that she was you know, appreciated for herself and not as a token of race or whatever. She, yeah. was, she felt you know, appreciated by the industry. And she went back to the States, She, she? went back to the yeah, States right. after that. <clears throat> and did have a good time going back. So it reminds me of like Josephine Baker as well. In America, in Missouri, I think she was originally from. And she had come to Europe to become a huge star. Mm -hmm. Because in America, they didn't see her talent. They just looked at her skin colour and they passed judgement. Yeah. I suppose with Baker, though, she was slightly marginalised, wasn't she, even in the system, even in Paris, you know, the films. It was still sort of just playing those... Stereotypes. Sort of, yeah, unfortunately. You know. yeah. Well, she was in... Anne Wong was in Shanghai Express, wasn't she, also? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely, with Marlena yeah. Dietrich, and ironically, yeah. Dietrich had to leave Europe for America to do yeah. what she wanted to do, and <laughs> Anna May Wong had to come to Europe to do what she yeah. wanted to do, and Anna May Wong did come back to Europe in 34, 35, and made three more films in Britain, um, and one of those was one of her favourites because she got to kiss her leading man. Which had been illegal in America. Yeah, exactly, because yeah. of miscegenation yeah. laws. Yeah. And there was a scene in, in Piccadilly where Valentine goes in for a kiss and it cuts... And I think I read that that yeah, had that been edited, that a kiss. Yeah, I think it was edited out, wasn't it? Yeah, it, was it was taken out because of the American market. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. We're at least we're more enlightened times now. Do we know anything about Gilda Grey? Siegfried Follies girl. I mean, all the photos in the, in the, the office on the wall are genuine, you know, yeah. stills of her uh, yeah. from her Follies days. Oh, really? One of her on the desk as well um, is a picture I recognise. And so, she invented the shimmy, apparently. Yeah, so the, 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 there's like a little bit of an in-joke almost where, where the guy that's attracted to her says, I'm going to make you big on Broadway, because she's already been big on Broadway, <laughs> okay. you know, and the audience yeah. would know that. So she was a major star? Yeah, she was a big Siegfried Flores, Follies girl. Yeah. OK. I take it everybody spotted the cameo. Well, not a cameo, but well, the very two, early... Two, two cameos. Well, yes, I know about two, but I only saw one. The, the, the diner? The, the guy that was complaining about the dirty dish? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Charles Lawson. Yeah. Is that his very first film role? It's his fourth film yeah. role. Fourth, OK. Yeah, his first was in Blue Bottles with his soon-to-be wife, Elsa Lanchester. Yeah. OK. He was in Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah. It felt like a Hitchcock film, yeah. those bits with Charles Lawton and the... Um, 
Yeah, he plays it so well, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. <laughs> like his time. <laughs> the, the, the contemporary advertising, the time, there was a, a picture of a big plate with a finger pointing at the dirty yeah. mark. Yeah. That was so... <laughs> also, I think there was a bottle of uh, HP uh, sauce, wasn't there? As oh, well, there was ketchup and, ketchup, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of crappy It's a bit of product placement, yeah, definitely. So it was very much pro- yeah. <laughs> placed yeah. before the camera. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other cameo, or very early appearance by a famous person, do we know that? Ray Meland, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's right. I saw that on the, on the advertisement. And I don't know who he is. I looked out for him. <laughs> I don't know who Ray, Ray Meland is. Ray is <laughs> rumoured to be in so many films. I don't know who he is. But We're I do, always I looking out for him. Did you see Ray Meland? Did you see Ray Meland? No. Well, in this movie here, I think he was about 21 years old. It's probably an urban myth. It is his autobiography as well. I still don't know about the two-tone, though. You know, the blue throughout... For night time, yeah, I don't, yeah, night know, outside. That, that, mm. I mean, it does look so lush, you know. Yeah. But for me, I was thinking the tinting. Yeah, yeah, I sort of, you know, it's, it's just a personal preference. I yeah, it did go to blue at night time, wasn't it? Was that the yeah? But I, it, maybe it's just when I saw the version in Paris at the cinema, that friend says it's it's without a tint. Oh really? Mm-hmm. And it, but it isn't as good. It doesn't, you know, it jumps around a lot. But okay, so you know, do you just find it jarring then? I sort of think. I don't think it doesn't need it. You know, it's a bit like uh, the hand tinting of Malays, or you know, uh, sometimes you you like it, or sometimes you don't, mm. isn't it? I quite like it tonight. I, I, I know you mean that. Do some, yeah. does something annoy me. I've got this box set of all the Lauren Hardy films, and each one has got the computer colorized version oh. of the same film in it. Mm. They're all hideous. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I think the worst ones were the were the yeah. Ted Turner when he owned uh, TBS went back and colorized by hand, like painting all the all the stills and all that. And the colouring they used was just atrocious and just. Yeah. It's easy for us to forget that most of silent film was tinted and yeah, toned, was right. coloured. Yeah. Like statues in churches now. now yeah, Roman, Roman yeah. statues, yeah. and yeah. you know it was a highly coloured world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, garish even. The film was, as far as I understand, the film was a gigantic hit, wasn't it? Certainly yeah, in so. Europe. Yeah, pretty. And do, do you know how it did in the states? Well, this is after the Hayes Code, is it not? No, just before. Just before. Yeah, yeah so that because under the Hayes Code, this movie would not have been released in America. Because of the racial... Yeah, that would, it would not have been released in America. Under Hayes Code, that was not allowed. And also, I mean, the scene where Valentine goes back to Shosho's room... Rooms, yeah. she calls it. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, that was good too, so she's socially mobile now. Yeah. One yeah. room, two... <laughs> That's quite, that's quite sexy. Yeah. It's quite, uh, you know, it's quite suggestive. And very They're clearly going to be at it as soon as the cameraman turned his back. <laughs> um, yeah, so that would have fallen foul of the Hayes Code, definitely. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Does anybody have any issue with her? Did we think that she's a kind of manipulative, sort of Chinese, you know, sinister, Eastern, all that stuff? You know, were they playing on those stereotypes? Big time, yeah. She went from being a sweet, nice, sweet, innocent girl and just like that became somewhat a, a, a vixen. Vamp. Vamp, yeah. I, I I sort of thought she was manipulative, but I, to me it wasn't... Uh, I, I did not look at it like a racial thing. I sort of thought there are some young, young women who are upwardly mobile, and uh, she was using her power, yeah. her sexual power, mm-hmm. over a man, yeah. which, which doesn't... Which can be in any context. Yeah. So I, I do not think that it was the intention was because she's Asian, and I, I really love that line where she sort of says, "No, he's." She, she says, mm. "He's not too old for me. You are too old for him." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. And she, she was twenty-eight. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. Gilda Grey, and that year, which isn't, doesn't seem very old. Oh. I mean, <laughs> but by Hollywood standards, it is old. Yeah, <laughs> still, even today, it's always well, been. Well, she was just being bitchy. I suppose that you know the film follows such cozy inventions, like you know that the foreigners sort of and where they are placed in the city, but also the male jury, all male jury, and yeah. realise you know that yeah, well, all white male jury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. And in the courtroom, you had all the Chinese in the far corner over there yeah. against the wooden chairs. Do you hear something, Michelle? I'm just talking about the shots, really. There's just, you know, the, the German touches, the Germanic expressionist touches, the, yeah. the, the men, the men who were watching. Yeah, the little gathering of yeah. the men seated, just very, you know, yeah. the, put me in mind of Lang and you yeah, know, the, right. the eyes, it's the yeah. eyes. and Even when they're in the chop house or the in Limehouse it, it's so authentic looking isn't it it's so the way you, yeah. and it, the fact that you can see the ceiling and stuff like that in it is, yeah. uh, so it's been lit it hasn't, it's not just one of these no, studios with the sort of uh, it's glass ceilings so perfect and then it's lit to this sort of atmosphere that appears so genuine you know it's like uh, and know. would that um, would the street scenes in Limehouse would that have been all sets studio sets yes Streets and yeah. interiors. Yeah, street, all in Elstree, yeah. OK. The German um, film industry, they were qu- quite fond of depicting um, the East End, yeah. Limehouse, Whitechapel, yeah. Pandora's Box. Well, I think Hitchcock box. was there for a couple um, of years, wasn't yeah. he, learning before he made Lodger and yes. learning yeah. his craft. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, yeah. And, and as the camera scans around in that in that um, saloon bar and there's all the little things that the people are doing, the woman's tucking some money into the top yeah. of her stocking yeah. Yeah. and you know the woman yeah. looking through the O's in the... That's in right. the window and, and just even handing out the uh, the drinks you know yeah. that tracking shot behind yeah. the bar person is it's so sophisticated I think yeah. the Germans are really particularly good at that kind of yeah. thing they, they you know the German cameraman and a director with a British production is a really great combination, combination yeah, yeah that's right it's almost times so almost theatrical isn't it and then sort of very photographic and then sort of moves it's got everything in it yeah. And E.A. Dupont yeah. is particularly oh, yeah, fascinated yeah. by theatrical life yeah. behind he had the such scenes. A long career, and didn't he? he went right up to even to the talkies very successfully. Yeah. Well, he he did. He wasn't so yeah. successful in the in. Uh, he went to America. Um, uh, this is his last final silent. This one, and he went to America, and he ended up making kind of poverty row type films. He they weren't wasn't a particularly happy time. I don't think. Thanks to Julian, Alan, Peter, Neela and Michelle for giving up their time to talk to Soho Bikes. If you hear this podcast before February the 9th, there's still time to catch Shot in Soho and I highly recommend it. If you're interested in seeing silent films with live musical accompaniment at various venues all over London, you can join the silent film group online and receive regular notifications. Go to meetup.com and search for London Silent Film Group. Michelle Facey hosts regular screenings of silent films at the Cinema Museum in Kennington. You can find details of these at kenningtonbioscope.com. And another screening of Piccadilly is coming up soon in London on Valentine's Day at Morley College in Lambeth. Details about this, the meetup group, the Shot in Soho exhibition, and everything else we've talked about in this episode are in the show notes. Go to sohobitespodcast.com and click on Piccadilly. Oh, and if you do get to see Piccadilly and you manage to spot Ray Milland, could you get in touch and let me know where he is? I still can't find him. So if you have any Raymond news for me, or you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in the show, or if you'd like to suggest a Soho film for us to talk about, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're on at Bytes Soho, or you can email us at sohobitespodcast 
at gmail.com. In the next episode, I'll be meeting Michael J. Buchanan Dunn, brilliant name, from the Murder Mile podcast, and he'll be telling me about the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of the boxer Freddie Mills, who was found dead in his car in Soho in 1965. Keeping with the pugilism theme, our Soho movie chat is about Night in the City from 1950, the story of a con man who tries to make it big in the world of professional wrestling. I'll be taking author, broadcaster and cultural theorist Ken Hollings to the pub to talk to him about that. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr Jingan Young. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. Jingan's new play, Death of a Journalist, is being staged as part of the Vault Festival in Waterloo. More details about this are on the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com. That's it for this episode. See you next time. Mm-hmm.